Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I'm your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. Join our mission and help change the conversation because we are all stronger together. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them through education and advocacy. The Good Dog Pod provides dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Casey Carl, who's the Associate Medical Director for Paw Print Genetics. And we are going to talk about, as I was just saying to Dr. Carl, a very hot button topic, and that is coat color. And so we're going to do sort of a coat color genetics 101 primer course with Dr. Carl. So welcome. Sure appreciate your time, sir. Oh, absolutely. I'm really excited to be here. It's great to be with you. Excellent. So our listeners love to know all kinds of things about their dogs and the burgeoning dog genetic testing, I think is really amazing. And it gives us the ability to better predict what we're going to see from our litters. Yeah. So with that, I'm very excited for you to talk about some of the primary colors, if you will, in dogs. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. There's a few different loci or locations that we talk about. They're kind of the foundational coat colors or kind of the base coat colors. Okay. And to get an understanding of those is really helpful because then you can kind of apply some of the other mutations that are more modifying to those and they will actually modify these here. And so it gives us kind of a framework to start with to get an understanding. Okay. So you suggested we start with, and I think this is great, E-locus, A-locus, and K-locus. Mm-hmm. E locus, which is the one I actually know about in my breed, and M locus. Yeah, yeah, I think those are great. And okay, especially, you know, starting with the E locus is good because it kind of derails the pathway <laughs> or they kind of go different ways depending on what's going on because dogs that have that two copies of the mutation at the E locus can't produce black or brown. So it kind of changes the direction. So you're saying the E locus, from what you're telling me, is shades of cream, apricot, and red, mm-hmm. solid white, but not necessarily albino, correct? Yeah, right. It's not albino. There are some mutations that have been discovered that have caused albino in some breeds, Mm -hmm. but many white dogs, actually, the e-locus does play a role in that. So, for instance, white poodles, also white shepherds, they are what we refer to as little e, little e at the e-locus, meaning that they've got two copies of the mutation there. But they also have two copies of a different mutation that is currently going by the i-locus or intensity locus. And dogs that have two copies of that mutation along with their two copies of the E-locus mutation will tend to be more towards the white spectrum, a very, very light color, like white poodles and those white shepherds. And so there are many other breeds that seem to carry that as well. But in terms of a lot of the overall shades of color that you can get from a dog that's little e-little-e, we haven't quite worked all of that out yet. And so it's not always easy to predict what shade they may be. Dogs more on the red end of the spectrum. Many times people will try to breed red dog to red dog, or at least dogs that they know produce red, because it tends to retain that red color a lot better. Mm -hmm. Kind of that fox red that we see in some Labradors or the red in poodles. Right. It tends to retain it a little better when you're breeding two red dogs together than if you say bred a red dog to a cream or a red dog to an apricot. Okay. So let's use, for example, this 
does or does not address nose pigment, iron pigment, things like that? It does not address the eye rim or nose pigment or foot pad pigment. That is actually dictated more by the B locus. And so if a dog is little e, little e at the E locus, they'll be that cream apricot or red, but the nose will still be dictated by the B locus. Okay. So a big B is, for our listeners who don't know, big B is black, little b is brown, correct? Yeah. So the B locus, there's what we call two alleles or two versions of the gene. And one of them is going to be for black and the other would be for chocolate. And chocolate or brown is a recessive trait. So just like with the E locus to be cream, apricot or red, you have to have two copies of that mutation, one from each parent in order to actually have that. Brown is the same way. And that's the definition of the recessive mutation is that both parents have to contribute one copy of that version of the gene to have a brown color. But dogs that are little b, little b, If they are also cream apricot or red in their hair coat, then the only part that you'll notice the brown in them would actually be on their nose and foot pads and such. They will modify those colors, but would not have any impact on the hair coat because that's already been modified by the E locus. Okay, so I'm going to have a step all the way back for people back to even before we get to loci and alleles. Yeah. And talk about the canine genome. I know everybody knows that we know it. We tracked it down, what was it, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah. Nailed it so that we know what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so each gene or pair of genes that you inherit, one from each parent, mm-hmm. affects everything in the dog, just like it does in the people. And so we're talking about just a small... What do we call it? Is it called a SNP? Am I saying that right? In some cases, yes. So a SNP is a type of a genetic mutation which occurs, and that is a very common one that we'll look for. But there can be other types of mutation as well. But we're just looking at different versions of the gene, essentially. So these versions are dictated by these particular mutations that we know end up playing a role in changing a color or trait or in some cases producing a disease. And so a lot of times those different versions of the gene are just referred to as alleles, A-L-L-E-L-E-S. And so that's kind of the terminology that's commonly used for that. And loci refers to where on the DNA strand this gene falls. Am I understanding that correct? I'm not a geneticist, so I'm really basic for people. No, that's great. I think it's important for people to understand. Loci is just basically plural of locus. And Mm -hmm. locus is just referring to a very specific area of the genome. And all of these color loci are named with these letter names. So B locus, E locus, A locus, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's just indicating a very particular location in the genome that we're looking for it. Good. We have all seen those little curly Q things that represent the DNA. (laughs) And so I'm trying to help people sort of visualize what we're talking about. And for listeners, we will have some graphics and some elements that we'll put up in the show notes that you'll be able to kind of see some of this visually as well as what we're describing on the podcast. So the E locus, we're talking about cream, apricot, red, white, all that sort of thing. A locus and K locus. I know very little about these particular areas. So talk to us about that. Yeah, they both work together. And the way that I think about it that seems to make the most sense is that the K locus is essentially the on-off switch for the A locus. And the A locus itself is what codes for a variety of different patterns. So we could get sable or fawn. We could get something known as wild sable or wild boar, which we see in dachshunds sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yep, in the wire-haired dachshunds. 
Or we could see tan points or phantom, like what we would see in, say, poodles. Rottweilers or Dobermans are kind of the classic dog mm-hmm. with that appearance. Manchesters. Yeah, yeah. But in some breeds, they will refer to it as other things. Like in some poodles, you'll hear it referred to as phantom. But they work together to create these patterns. And so dogs that are what we refer to as KYKY at the K locus, and that's just a dog that's inherited that version of the gene from each parent, that essentially turns on the A locus. That's the signal in that particular dog to express the A locus in that dog. And then there are many possibilities that we could have at the A locus that would give us these particular colors. And there are four different actual alleles or variations on the gene that we look at at the A locus, and they go by different letter names. One is AY, one is AW, one is AT, and one is a little A. And they all have kind of a hierarchy of dominance, with the AY being the most dominant, which means that if AY is inherited along with any of the other types, the AY is really the one that would be seen in that dog. And that would code for sable or fawn in that particular dog. So since it's the most dominant, it tends to be one of the more easy colors or patterns to get, because if a dog has it and is also, as I mentioned, KYKY at the K locus, then they should show that pattern. Like a sable collie or a Shetland sheepdog or something like that. Yes, any of that type of sable color. And sable typically would be defined as hairs that have a very light base on them. And as it progresses towards the tip of the hair, it's going to become black towards the tip. Interestingly, if dogs are actually little b, little b at the b locus, so they would technically be brown, rather than having a traditional sable with the black tip, the tip would actually be brown or chocolate. And so they're going to be a quote unquote chocolate sable. Hmm. where it would progress to a chocolate tip rather than the black, because with that little b, little b, they can't produce that black in their hair coat. Right. Fascinating. Okay. I work with wire hair pointers, so I'm very familiar with, because in Europe, there are dogs that are black Mm -hmm. wire hair pointers, black ticked wire hair pointers. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., we have them, but they're not shown in the AKC show ring. They're registrable. They do everything else, but you don't show them in the show ring. So there's lots of conversation in my breed and in my club. And so I've had to learn way more than I ever wanted to know about big B, little b. So talk to us again then about the M. And this one can take us completely sideways. We may wind up having a longer conversation about this down the road. Yeah. The M locus is about merle coloration. Yeah. And Merle is a beautiful coat color. It's become very popular in many breeds. And essentially, it's a coat color that is very common. You'll see it very commonly in breeds like the Australian Shepherd and many other breeds. But it's essentially defined as areas of fully pigmented regions separated by either a dilute kind of gray color. So a dilution of that color in between those areas, or in some cases, actually white in between those areas, which would give us more of an appearance that we refer to as Harlequin in Australian Shepherds. There is a harlequin as well that can be seen in the Great Dane, but there's actually a different genetic underpinning for that. So that's a little bit different. Okay, that was actually just my question. I'm like, wait. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So interestingly, on that note, Great Danes actually do have this Merle mutation, which plays a role in their harlequin, but they actually have a separate mutation as well that they inherit along with that in order to give them their appearance. There's something they call Merlequin. Yeah. So the Merlequin that they refer to, that's usually situations where, yeah, they have a variety of different terms that they use when they're both Merle and these other appearances. Patched, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Harlequin is a very common pattern that we see in Great Danes. It's just produced in a slightly different way in them. Mm -hmm. They can still be Merle as well. So if they don't have the Harlequin mutation along with it. Right. 
Merle to me is one of the most fascinating things just because there's so much direction that it can sprawl. Yeah, it's incredibly diverse because of kind of the very nature of the specific genetic mutation that's happened in it. And there's a piece of DNA that's referred to as a sign element that has been inserted into a gene known as the PMEL gene. And that piece of DNA is very unstable from generation to generation or even from cell to cell. So when the embryo is forming in a female dog after conception, we're going to have a lot of cellular replication there to be able to try to form that animal. And every time those cells divide, they have to make a complete copy of the DNA in that cell to give it to the new cell to produce this new cell. Well, this particular mutation that occurs in Merle is very unstable, and the body's not very good at replicating that particular region. And so it ends up resulting in the size of that piece of DNA changing. And most commonly, it gets smaller in size in dogs, but it can actually get larger as well. And if those changes happen in the sperm or in the egg, so at the location where they could actually be passed on to the offspring, then those changes could actually be passed on to the offspring. Where we get concerned is in situations where perhaps the mutation size gets so small in a dog that it's technically there, but the dog doesn't produce any obvious merle pattern. And that can happen in very small size mutations. The concern with that is, is if you happen to take that dog and happen to breed it to a dog that was merle unknowingly, there are some rare circumstances where you might see that the dog that was originally non-merle in appearance actually had that mutation enlarge in size to some degree. So it technically becomes more like a functional merle mutation again. And if that's passed along with merle from the other parent, and if any puppy gets two copies of merle, you could potentially run into an issue. It's often referred to as double merle. Dogs that inherit two copies of that mutation quite often will have an excessive amount of white, sometimes nearly all white. And in many circumstances, they will have hearing or vision deficits associated with that that can be very significant. And so kind of the general recommendation when we talk about Merle's, if you're ever going to breed an obviously Merle dog, it's not a bad idea to test the other dog for Merle first to verify that they don't happen to carry a version of the mutation even if it's smaller and not actually visible and expressed. Exactly. There is a lot of controversy about this right now out there in the dog world. Right. I'm saying I've been following social media on a conversation about this exact thing in Australian Shepherds. So I really would love to kind of noodle at this a little bit. Yeah, it's a very hot topic. And part of it is, is that there are many people that claim that if there's no real risk at breeding a cryptic Merle dog or a dog that doesn't show this mutation to a dog that does have the Merle pattern. In many circumstances, I believe that could be true. In many circumstances, people could probably get away with that. At Popprint Genetics, it's been our stance, though, that we don't recommend it. We don't recommend going that route because there have been rare cases We actually saw cases of this in our laboratory when we were doing some study with Merle that dogs that were very obviously non-Merle were having Merle puppies in some cases. And it was purely just this situation that I discussed where they happen to have this mutation in large and show that. So there is this rare possibility and the level of disease that it causes in these dogs when they actually do inherit two copies that are of the correct size to have this happen can be pretty significant. And so trying to avoid that obviously is going to be best practice. So when you say it's a rare situation, again, I just kind of want to drill into this. Talk to me rare, like 0.6 tenths of a percent or 20%. I mean, how rare is rare in this sort of thing? Do you have a way to document that? 
We really don't. And part of it is that the size of that mutation can vary significantly. And so if you have a dog that is way, way, way down on the very small end, just using statistics, it's going to probably be much less likely that they're going to move, you know, enlarge enough to actually have an issue or have this actually show a Merle pattern at some point. And dogs can fall out anywhere in a very large range, and it's not very predictable as to when or if that will expand in the upcoming generation. And so really, it's very hard to pinpoint, but it does seem to be a relatively rare event. It is much more common that dogs would have the size of their mutation decrease in those events. Mm -hmm. Okay, fascinating stuff. And then, so just again, using what itty teeny tiny, you can't see me barely (laughs) saying my level of knowledge. For example, in wire-haired pointers, if they do not have a big B making them black, even if their sire or dam had a big B, but also a little B, and it went to the offspring, their liver, their brown, what have you, they cannot produce the black because they don't express it. How does that compare to the M locus and what you're talking about with the cryptic Merle, right? So in other words, if you don't show it, you don't produce it, obviously isn't the case in these rare instances, how far back do you have to track your solid tri-dog to see if there was ever any Merle? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so that's a great point. So when it comes to Merle, it is a little bit different than some of our other traits or things because it is inherited in this dominant fashion. And dominant is kind of the other common inheritance pattern, second to recessive. Dominant only requires one copy of a mutation from only a single parent in order to actually show the trait. And so with Merle, Merle dogs would only need that one copy to actually produce that beautiful Merle pattern. And opposed to a situation like Brown, where you could technically be a black dog that carries Brown and you would never know it by simply looking at the dog. And that's kind of the big difference because Brown is that recessive trait, which again, requires those two parents to actually pass that on. So That is a big difference. You know, the only time that you wouldn't see a Merle mutation or actually see it visible in the dog is a situation where that Merle mutation tends to be smaller. Yeah. Okay. That tends to be the case. Now, I will say, though, that Merle is, at Popper Genetics, we've kind of grouped Merle dogs into four general groups based upon the size of their Merle mutation and kind of the general appearance that they have. There are other schemes out there that people have developed as well to kind of separate these. I don't know that one is necessarily more right than the other. It's just different. There are definitely people that will claim that theirs is better than another or whatever the case may be. But really, when it gets right down to it, most of them fall into these very particular groups. But some dogs just don't read the textbook, so to speak. There are some dogs that we just don't understand why, but they end up in a different group, even though the size of their mutation falls into what we would expect to see they may appear slightly different or appear like they're from a different group. And that definitely happens. There's no defined walls between these groups that we've created. They're all kind of artificial constructs. Okay. So I guess bottom line, the takeaway on this is if you are breeding dogs and you're working with the Merle gene in whatever you're breeding, that having some kind of genetic testing gives you information that you wouldn't otherwise have. Absolutely. And especially to test that other non-Merle dog before you breed it to a Merle dog is a really, really great idea. And you had mentioned something about kind of going back in generations and things like that. It's not really as critical. I mean, if you just focus on that immediate parent, that immediate parent that is there, that's going to be the most crucial aspect to that. Okay, beautiful. So talk to us a little bit then. I want to hop back to the E-Locus and the white dogs 
So you're talking about a white standard poodle, a white German shepherd, a Bichon, you know, some of those types of dogs that we didn't really get a chance to follow up on that eye locus. Yeah. And the eye locus is a relatively new genetic mutation that's been discovered that results in these dogs that are literally, literally being more close to white. Currently, right now, at this very moment, we don't offer it through our pop print genetic service, that particular test, but we do have a canine genetic screening product called the Canine Health Check that we offer at Pop Print Genetics. And that test is on the Canine Health Check right now. We will be bringing it to Pop Print Genetics, but I don't have a specific timeline as to when that's going to happen, but it is on our list and we will be bringing it over here very soon to Pop Print as well to order as an individual test. Right, right. Opposed to a large screening. Full screen. Oh, yeah. Right. And when you're talking about the e-locus again, you've got everything from a Vishla with a self-colored nose to an Irish setter, both red, but with a black nose. And mm -hmm. so that's the part, just giving people ideas of the B-locus that's involved, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the B-locus will play a role in that. You know, one common thing that we talk about with, say, for example, Labrador breeders, yellow Labrador breeders in particular, is that in most cases, they would really prefer to keep that nice black nose. And so one of the things that they're looking at there is, does this dog carry chocolate? And if so, how do I breed around that so that I don't get a chocolate nose in my yellow Labrador? And because that B-locus plays such an important role in dictating that nose color. So it can be very helpful to use that to your advantage. And it's pretty easy to breed around if you know what your dogs are carrying. Well, right. If you know what you have, you can either make a chocolate dog if you're looking to make a chocolate lab, or you can have yeah. black nose pigment. And I think, I guess to me, the advantage of genetic testing is it gives us so much more flexibility. I mean, my parents bred field trial labs way back in the day. And you look at that black dog and I'm like, does it have three white hairs on the underside of its pad? Okay, it carries yellow. <laughs> yeah. I'm seriously, yeah. that's how we knew or didn't know if yep. that dog was going to carry yellow. And I think back to those days in the mid 70s thinking, wow, it would have been so much easier. <laughs> there are many things that breeders discover being on the front line out there, you know, about color, things that they've just observed in their lines that we would never know as scientists. You know, I learned so much from our clients just about the little tips and tricks that they've learned over the years to identify certain things and dogs. And, you know, most of the research that's out there comes from somebody observing something. And these type of things are very important. And I think it's really important for us as scientists to listen, to listen to the breeders, listen to what they've known for all these years and pay attention. Well, there you go. There's your tip of the day. Three white hairs in the pad of my black lab. <laughs> serious. I'll keep that in mind. Definitely serious. All right, listeners, here's the deal. Dr. Carl has agreed to do this more than once. And so whatever questions you have going forward, we'll have a link for you in the show notes to shoot us some questions and we can talk about this some more. We have some future episodes talking about some of the dilution of the various color genes, which I think is going to be fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited to have those conversations. Absolutely. There's a little bit of a disease component to that one as well, which is kind of interesting. So we can definitely talk about that as well. That'd be great. Yep. I think that there's a lot of great conversations to be had going forward. So I sure appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, anybody can reach me at Pawprint Genetics as well if they want to reach out and have any specific questions about things. I'm always available there as well. Excellent. All right. Well, until next time, watch this space. Good Dog has been deeply inspired by dog clubs and the important work that they do in promoting breeds and educating the public. 
Good Dog is on a mission to use technology as a force for good, to unite, support, and empower the good forces in the dog world. And there are no greater forces for good than dog clubs. Good Dog could not be more excited to announce their new club partnership program. This offers exclusive benefits to all clubs, including parent clubs, specialty, regional, local, all-breed, performance, all the clubs. Club benefits include annual grants of up to $2,000, annual contributions to breed-specific research, free tech support for items like improving website SEO, and free legal support and mediation. Due to overwhelming interest in Good Dog's club partnership program, we've extended the deadline for priority application to receive a club partnership grant. The new deadline is November 30th. Apply as soon as possible if your club is interested in securing funding for this year, 2020. For more information, please email Kat Matlug, Good Dog's Head of Community, Partnerships, and Legal Affairs at cat, C-A-T, at gooddog.com. Please share information about the Club Partnerships Program so that we can provide as much support to the good forces in the dog world as possible. We hope you and your clubs will join us because we are so much stronger together. Together, we can change the dog world. <laughs>